0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus,
1: Brendan and Mark. Welcome listeners. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com episode 165. Friday, fourth of December already, Mark, fourth of December two thousand and twenty. Gee, it will be the end of the year, Christmas New Year before we know it. And for those of you who've been listening to us for a while, we will be doing our Christmas special over that or our New Year special or our festive season special. We should be non-denominational, I suppose, shouldn't we, Mark? And that could be it could be a rambling. 10 minute or, or two hour program. So something to look forward to or not. Um, and before we jump into um, the actual show proper, Mark, I've got, I received an email from a, I think it's a podcast in statistician person or site, and uh, they, I think they're trying to get us to, to subscribe and make us feel good, Mark. Because they mentioned that our podcast has a good performance in some key rankings in the last thirty days. I, I think I flicked it over to you, Mark, but you may probably didn't look at it as usual. Um, <laughs> we are ranked. We are ranked position number nine in the category of natural sciences in podcast, Mark, um, and in brackets in Slovakia. <laughs> <laughs> We are ranked number four in the category of natural sciences in podcasts in the United Arab Emirates, and one of the other ones was um, we uh, ranked position 14 in the category of natural sciences in New Zealand for podcasts, Mark. Um, probably 14 out of 14 <laughs> <laughs> um, for natural science podcasts. So it was um, quite an interesting little email we received from that um, that person and um, just uh, I think they've just plucked out a few um, things to make us feel good and um, I'm sure we'll get a follow-up email saying can we please subscribe to their um, podcast to statistics and, and pay some money to get some fe- more feel- feel-good podcast um, stats, Mark. So what have you been up to? Just the usual, Brendan, working, working, working. Yes,
0: um, me too. It's been um, particularly, I think um, the whole of Eastern Australia these last few days has been in a bit of a a, uh, a heat wave. So even the times I've been out of the hospital, it hasn't felt like um, maybe the best thing to do to be um, running around or gardening or um, trudging through the bush looking for things. It's been just keep it nice
1: and calm. Sometimes I need to put myself on mute, don't I? <laughs> um, but it's good to get it in early, I think, and hopefully for the rest of the podcast, I will not be on mute when when you cross over to me. Am
0: I oh. am I supposed to go on mute when I'm like having a drink or um, or just yeah, you cocking?
1: should. <laughs> but it, but it's it's pretty rare that um, we hear it in the background there, Mark. Apart from the podcast last week or the week before, where there was some screeching cars outside, which um, apparently some listeners heard. Um, yeah. I had a bit of feedback about that. Um, so, no, uh, and I sometimes put you on mute as well. I know you don't uh, don't really bother about that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> Never so, shut up. Yes. No, Never. yes. So, um, yes, so um, if you need to contact us, vetgurus at gmail.com and the website vetgurus.com the place to be the place to go and you can see all the previous episodes and tell your friends and um, ask them to subscribe um, to the podcast and i know i said i wasn't going to have one mark i do have a quick review this week before we have our our news stories and uh, the reason being is um, i got a package that (laughs) arrived on the doorstep i'll tell you what it's a heavy package it's Jeez, I've got it right in front of me at the moment, and it's 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 a hefty weight, Mark, and it's a bit of light reading. It is the fifth edition of the Saunders Comprehensive Veterinary Dictionary, Mark. That's just been released, and it's a it's a massive tome. And um, um, I need to um, I need to mention that the reason why it arrived is I, I, it was one of um, one of the projects I've been helping out with over the last last few years um, and I'm listed as one of the contributors well actually sort of a section editor even though I think they just call I'll just have a look at the front here, what do they call the editors? Contributors, they call the editors contributors They're the three main um um, authors or editors um, of the book, but there's a whole list of other sort of sub-editors because I got asked to be the the editor for mainly the unusual pets and the exotics and the wildlife um, and the zoo animals that are in there. Mark, so um, full disclaimer: um, this is my free copy that I've got in front <laughs> of me um, for all the work that um, I did, and yeah, it is a it is a um, an amazing um, production having said that i'm not going to give a review out of 10 because um i've got kind conf- um conflicting um sort of you know i want to stay independent here mark um, with it so the fifth edition of it just been released and it also have online resources as well mark which includes you can go online if you purchase a book and you can get um What does it include? It includes printable appendices with essential reference information and blood groups and conversion charts and also pronunciation of some key terms, I think, are done online as well. Um, And this edition, Mark, well over 60,000 main and sub-entries, including small animals and exotics, as I mentioned. And um, I'll tell you what, it's a a good book to, to go to bed with because, You'll fall asleep pretty damn quick. And I'm up to, where am I up to? I'm up to, let me just, I'm up to Ard Wolf, Mark. Ard Wolf, um, which is the African carnivore, um, the definition of that, um, which is a, a hyena type species that feeds mainly on termites, Mark. So there you go. And um, I think they have retained a, f- a few of the entries uh, that were in the original. Um, comprehensive dictionary because a few of the entries had some some jokes in there, Mark. Um, I don't know whether you remember that. Um, the original one was done by um, Professor Blood from Melbourne University here and, he, and you'd read through the old dictionary and they'd have some pretty weird and wonderful sort of um, sly comments about certain species or, 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 or veterinary definitions and I think they've retained a few of them, although they deleted one that I suggested they should keep. Um, what was your I'm suggestion? Gonna, I'm not. No, I'm not going to mention it because it's a bit controversial, <laughs> and and I don't think it's. Uh, um, yeah, it's yeah. Um, I, no, I'm not going to mention it. Um, I know. I know. I
0: just need to point out here that. Um, uh, our listeners would not be aware of the huge amount. You you downplay it as um, a contributor as a, a section editor or whatever, but uh, I know the effort you've put in to particularly highlight um, unusual and exotic VET terminology and make sure that it's um, treated with the respect and understanding that it deserves. You, I, I um, do a shout-out for how much work you do that's unsung, Brendan.
1: Oh, thank you, Mac. Um well, interestingly enough, I, f- I think I finished on the section I had, um, which was sort of overseeing those exotic um, terms and, and species, et cetera, and, and, and species of wildlife that we decided to add or delete, um, mainly add, obviously, Um Probably, oh, I reckon it's two years ago. So it shows you how, or at least 18 months ago. So it shows you how long it takes for books to be produced. It was originally going to be released early this year, but with all COVID and everything, it, it it became delayed or potentially late last year. So um, it, it has taken a while. And, and since then, or actually during that period, there was probably several hundred, if not more, um Words that um, relate to exotics and and wildlife that uh, we would have or I would have liked to have been included. So I think we we'll have to wait for the f- sixth edition for those to be included. So it just shows you how how quickly things. Become out of date to a certain, um, certain amount. Not that this fifth edition is out of date. It's the <laughs> perfect, um, most up to date comprehensive veterinary dictionary on the market, Mark, and uh, it also has the online uh, resources as well. So, so there you go. But it, I reckon it weighs a good, almost two kilograms or so. So, um, yeah, it. Um, you know, if you're sick of um, getting definitions, there you can always use it as a doorstop, um, and it would be very suitable for that. Now it's fantastic, and um, the, it's some um, great contributors in there, and, it, and it's beautifully illustrated too. It's got colour photos in there, and it's got diagrams, and it's got reference values, the bloods, and, and other bits and pieces. And I'm sure it'll be a a text that is standard reading for veterinary students and a lot of vets as well. So there you go. That's my review. It was going to be a two-minute review, but it ended up being, what, um, eight minutes or so probably. And um, it's available now from all good bookstores, and it's an Elsevier um, production or, or printing. Um, so that's my review, Mark, and I think you said you have one, but um, we'll ha- hold that off to next week um, to keep our listeners waiting um so let's jump into our news topics um, we have one each and you have one about um, a, a an iconic Australian species
0: I do Brendan um
1: it's a little bit um
0: depressing the news about our platypus um the Australian um, monotreme um, that lives in the water and uh, and um and the latest information is that um uh, recent surveys suggest that the numbers of these animals in the wild are dropping, and particularly my home state, state of New South Wales, um, the Australian Conservation Foundation uh, was the predominant sponsor of the study, and um, that uh, overall, um, 32% uh of the the drop in number of platypus in New South Wales has dropped by 32% in the last three decades. Uh, Queensland wasn't far behind with 27% in your home state, Brendan, still uh, being a stronghold for platypus, but still saw a 7% decline over the whole state. But catchments around your hometown of Melbourne uh, saw numbers dive by almost two thirds. Um, And, uh, the previous uh, conservation status um, uh, um, of um, stable has been shifted to vulnerable for this species as a consequence. Um, and, it, I mean, it just, um, you know, uh, such a high-profile... Um, emblematic species, uh, so unique to our country, and um, and you know so characteristic of of the differences of Australia. To see the numbers plummet like this is just heartbreaking. Newspaper reports uh, from a century ago uh, suggested that hunters might. Um, bag as many as 20 pelts a day uh, from this species um, and uh, so that sort of gives some indication about um, about how easy they were to come across um, there would be very very few people these days that uh, that um, well get to see a single one let alone 20 um, so so it's a, a little bit of a, a heartbreaking situation It does appear to be the case, Brendan, that um, it's a whole tidal wave of um, land clearing, uh, catchment changes in uh, uh, water flow, um, the bushfires. All these uh, things have rolled into one and put unique pressure on this um, very, very special um, animal. It's a little bit heartbreaking all round. And and the worst part about it is that I don't see... You know, even knowing this stuff hurts, but you would think that it might trigger, oh, we've got to change this or that for uh, reasons, you know, just to save our most um, iconic species. Uh, but I don't see anything in the near future that's going to um, uh, change the circumstances and um, and allow us to stabilise or increase their population, Brendan.
1: Yes, I don't know how I can make that upbeat from there, Mark. Um, I did see one. Tri-
0: we did see one very recently. Kate and I went um, camping in the uh, Barrington Tops National Park, and um, and we managed to see a couple of them up there. Um, but um, but geez, you've got to go to pristine waterways and um, and really spend some time to find them.
1: They- are amazing creatures that i was lucky enough to deal with them when i was working as a zoo veterinarian and and occasionally um, since then as well um, having said that Mike I have seen platypus swimming in the in the Yarra River in central Melbourne um, which is a river that goes through our, our capital city here uh, and um, and that was in the days when they used to call the Yarra an upside down river because it was murky looking and um, you could hardly see through it because it was so sort of polluted in, in a respect, and I did see um, platypus swimming up there, and they were routinely still catching them um, and tagging them and, and monitoring them there. Yeah, but it's not looking great, is it, for the old um, the old platypus um, and platypus um, my platypus pelts will be even more valuable as time goes on. I think, um, considering what's happening. Well, mine's that I've got. I've got some good news. Um, it's a monkey that's new to science has been discovered in the remote forests of Myanmar, um, and it's a Popo langur, named after its home of Mount Popa, is. Um, Well, the bad news is is, um, they've discovered it and now um, they've realised it's critically endangered. Um, I shouldn't be laughing, but um, good news that turns into bad news. So newly discovered primate is already facing extinction, Mark. Um, And it's only recently with the opening up of of Myanmar to to, um, the West, I suppose, or to international um, scientists that they've started discovering new species in that particular country um which also includes um, not just not just um the mammals but reptiles and amphibians and and, and no doubt birds as well mark and um Guess what? Um, hunting is the big problem and, uh, habitat as well. Um, because the habitat's fragmented, reduced and isolated due to human encroachment, according to the article, which was described in the journal Zoological Research Mark, but, um, quite cute looking. Um, there's a couple of pictures there of this, um, this little monkey, but uh, I think they say the numbers are down to two to 250 animals. Um, as far as I know, that are left um, since they discovered that this was this particular species existed, Mark. So there's two non-good, um, feel-good stories, Mark. We've given this week, so I think we'll need to make sure that next week we provide some upbeat news. And I'll have to go to all those positive news sites. Um, not that there's many of them left <laughs> these days, and um, we'll see if we can find some some positive news for us. Um, so I think with that. There's no real segue, but we'll go into nursing (laughs) of exotic pets, Mark. That's our main topic this week. We thought we'd, we need to um, provide a podcast um, Mm -hmm. that that helps out the veterinary nurses or technicians because we've left them on their own for a while. We haven't provided a podcast directly aimed at them recently, have we, Mark, or in the last few months or so. So we're going to have a bit of a chat about, or an overview about um, the nursing of exotic or unusual pets um, in the clinic, Mark, and um, from the minute they come in, from admission, whether it's whether it's for routine procedures or workups or or as an emergency, and and I think what we were trying to consider doing for this is to sort of highlight the differences of dealing with these species and some of the tips and tricks of, of dealing with these exotic pets.
0: Sounds exactly what I like what I was thinking. And the key thing I was thinking when we were talking about this topic, Brendan, is that I think uh, a lot of the companion animal stuff um, is uh, a lot more like straight up and down. You know, the the support staff, the nurses, the technicians, um, their role in that is um, much more predictable. And, and we do need our uh, support staff. Uh, who are working with avian and exotic species to um, have a few, they they have a bigger involvement both in the hospitalisation and um, and as the animals come to to the hospital. There's things that they can set up for us that make a massive difference.
1: And I think I always concentrate on... Especially when we have um, tra- we have at the moment training up um, a new nurse, is yeah the differences? What's different and what's the same about um, dealing with them from the moment? You know, as far as from the client perspective, it's too with admitting these animals in and and um, getting into the clinic. But what you know, there's some obviously unique things that are completely different that we have to deal with and concentrate on, um, and some of them are critical in order to keep the animal alive as we're. As we're um, dealing with that species um, as it goes through the clinic um, and gets out the other end, hopefully well. So, the first thing we'll talk about, Mark, and we'll sort of, I think, we'll bounce between the two of us is, is getting the animal to the clinic. So, the admission process, um, including those ones that are just in for routine um, surgeries like desexins, et cetera. And I think a key one there is the, 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 the the pre-admission um, sort of chat to the client about getting the animal to the clinic, you know, how do you transport the animal to the clinic and and concentrating on the differences like um, keeping the animal warm and quiet and dark, um, especially with, with the reptiles, for instance, they, they need to be um, on, on a heat pad um, and simple processes like we've spoken before in the podcast, having a, a little wheat sack or a heat bag that they have in one corner of the, the box for reptiles um, with a towel overlying that and then the animal in a um, in a little pillowcase um, with the option to sort of crawl or slither off that um, heat pad so it doesn't um, get burnt there. So it needs to be warm, it needs to be quiet, it needs to be restrained. How many, how many um, animals have you seen out in the car park or, or clients drive up to the clinic where they've got an animal that's just roaming freely? around the car, Mark, have you had that many times? Many, many, many times.
0: And and that's despite the support staff making a big point of um, trying to set things up so that the animal is secure. Um, and whether it's, you know, the obvious danger of someone driving and having a ferret slip under the accelerator or a, a, a macaw land on their shoulder... Um, once they get into the hospital, there are other patients to worry about. And, of course, it, um, an agitated, excited animal makes it that much more difficult for us to do a physical exam on. So that security and comfort and uh, um, appropriate, tra- uh, a- 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 appropriate carrying, uh, enclosure restriction, restraint, um, they're all things that should be set up well before they get to the hospital.
1: Absolutely, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, we can, they can use a, the normal cat carriers, or a little cardboard box, or, or variations thereof. But it's just sort of. Um Really, we have little um, pre-admission care sheets that we give to clients or we can email to them that walks them through the process of your animal's coming in for a routine procedure. It's an unusual pet. It's a rabbit, for instance, and this is a process that we recommend because there are things that are different. And part of that is the, the whole starve or not starve situation, isn't it, Mark? And and typically, clients will... will, will Think that, yeah, I need to starve my rabbit or my guinea pig or my snake or my ferret um, before I bring it to the clinic for its routine surgery uh, because that's what you do when you're a human and you go to hospital. You need to starve overnight and it's what you do with your dog or your cat. Um, but what about? the unusual pet mark, do we do the same with those? Well, we we certainly need to be careful of
0: what they've got in their digestive system, but certainly we don't need to have nearly the same length of time. And, in fact, um, you know, that, that uh, herbivorous animal, the guinea pig or rabbit that's had... No food overnight before it comes into hospital has a completely different biochemistry um, and energy balance available to deal with the anaesthetic. So, we do like to, you know, maybe make sure that um, we've had a short period of time without access to foods, uh, but not that's something the clients certainly don't need to worry about before they bring the
1: animal in. So, I think part of that is, and it gives you a bit of a feel for whether the client. Um, tells you the truth. Um, it's a <laughs> bit of a truth serum, this one, isn't it, Mark? It's the old ask the client to bring in a lunch pack for their small oh, mammals, especially. A, I learned this from
0: you, and I think it's one of the best, um, you know, uh, cut to the chase. Get the truth out of them because we all know um, when we ask them what they're fed, they've read the internet, they've read your wonderful um, uh, animal care handouts, and they have wrote learnt the answers that we want to hear. The birds they only eat, ever eat pellets, and uh, of course the the um, the rabbits are on nothing but grass hay. But what happens when they
1: bring their lunchbox in, Brendan? What happens? Well, then you see that they've got all sorts of mixes and and treats, and oh, I, I've lost count of some of the things that they put in there. You know, dumb, uh, cracker biscuits. Um, um, things like even like um I don't I don't think they have them overseas twisties a little the little treats um, um, chips all sorts of stuff so it's a bit of a yeah, it's a bit of an eye-opener so um, they yeah they write on their form or they say that yes yeah, so I feed my rabbit hay and veggie diet and then you see what they've dropped off for their little snack pack for their for their rabbit and it's quite eye-opening but yeah um, most people do the right thing and they do provide a decent lunch pack for their animal. So the aim there is, Mark, that, that if it's that rabbit or guinea pig or, or small mammals in for it's a routine surgery, that as soon as it's awake, you can feed it or offer it the lunch pack that the client brought in. And it's- so it's eating its typical food that it normally eats and it's more likely to, to eat straight away, and especially with our, our species like our rabbits and our guinea pigs, we want to make sure there's food in the stomach before they are discharged. Um, so and it's it's better the clients providing that food than you trying to hunt around for them, although we certainly are often out the back trying to grab some grass and bits and pieces and and, and raiding somebody's lunch um, salad to to provide a bit for a rabbit that wasn't dropped off um, without a Lunch pack for them. Mark.
0: We we Next. actually have, yep. um, uh, um, and this is one of the things that the support staff manage. A number of pots um, uh, with garden soil in them that have a number of um, emergency greens uh, just for such a situation. Um, and so it is. There's an extra thing that they can be prepared if space permits at the hospital.
1: Is that your excuse for having all that wacky tobacky, Mark, in your clinic um, out the back there? Um, it's for it's medicinal purposes, isn't it? Of course. We've got the, the cannabinoid oils. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, so the next one is, um, which is, again, it's, it's a very important one. It, it's weigh these animals, these unusual pets, and weigh them often, Mark, and not just because of the fact that if you have some of them in the clinic, especially the high met- metabolic rate, um, species like some of the birds, for instance, um, that may lose weight fairly rapidly, even though you think you're giving them enough nutrition. Um, it's for calculating dose rates, and you really need to sit down and when you're medicating these species, um, and often it is given to the veterinary nurse or technician to, to give a dose rate of a particular medication to these inpatient species, um, you really need to just get a little quiet corner, get the calculator out, um, double and triple check um, once you've weighed that animal, Um, because we're dealing with some pretty small animals, aren't we, Mark, that may only weigh several grams sometimes. Uh, So doing your calculations correctly and avoiding um a misplaced decimal point is essential. Well there was a long-term
0: myth wasn't there Brendan in in our line of work that um ferrets for example were very sensitive to um to the local anesthetics. Um and um what seems to have happened to beget that myth is that um is that the doses weren't worked out accurately. When you use the the appropriate dose, um, I think many people were just, um, you know, drawing up half a mil and uh, delivering it to the ferret um, and not working out the dose specifically. Um, and, um, and if you do that, then you can get into trouble with any of our um, small species. So you're measuring them accurately and uh, close to the time that you admit the the, uh, pr- provide any medication. Um, that that's a critical thing. And another thing we've found, Brendan, we've got a series of scales through the hospital, and um, we've taken to naming them because we have had, you know, with a the, some of the scales might just make a, a, a small difference um, in absolute measurement. They, have, you know, yes. we don't have the uh, the government authority come in and whack their. Uh, tungsten plated one kilogram weight on our scales to check um but um but if we are using different scales sometimes that can uh, artificially give us a false number so knowing which set of scales you've used and using a consistent set with each animal is a good thing too
1: so you must tell me then what what's the name of these scales? Is it the one that works and the one that doesn't work, or what is it? Or is it Joe jo and Sally and 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 um, Martha? Flat battery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The little scales, the big scales. What do you've
0: got we've got I think we all I counted this up at one point. We've got um something like um we've got the big scales out the front that do the dog and cat sort of, you know, um weigh in as they come in. Yep, yep. Um for our exotics, I think we've got eleven sets of scales and we've got the little, you know, the the tiny uh tenth of a gram. Uh, set um, that we use uh, quite regularly for things like hatchling turtles, um, and then I think we've got about eight of the um, of the uh, sort of kitchen scales that are good for up to maybe a kilo, and then we've got a couple of those uh, sort of baby looking ones. They're they maybe- yeah, they market them as cats cat scales, don't yeah, they? Yeah. I think
1: that's, yeah, yep. Yeah,
0: so it's easy, fit. and particularly between sizes, you know that um, if you put one of the birds onto the cat size scale and then put it onto the kitchen scale type, um, you'll um, you'll often get quite a significant difference. So being consistent once you get a number of these scales, um, being consistent with the patient and the scales that you use with them can help.
1: Yes, and I think a, a takeaway. With, uh, or an add-on to that for clients is that um, I'm constantly uh, mentioning to clients that they should weigh their unusual pets regularly, and and I think it's something that the nurses or, or technicians should be saying to clients as well. And it doesn't really matter if they're that they've got some cheap kitchen scales at home that they're weighing their pet because they're weighing them consistently on the same scales, so they will notice a difference whether that animal's gaining weight or, or not, regardless of whether that that particular you know grams or kilograms. Or pounds, or whatever, is 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 accurate. So um, it's. And, and they're cheap, aren't they? You know, those those kitchen-type scales are only several dollars and um, it's something that um, we really push for the clients to do. So once we've got that animal in, Mark, so we've admitted it to the clinic, they've got their lunch pack, we've weighed that animal, what's our next step with them as far as the nursing um, of these pets? What do they do with them? Well,
0: I suppose um, you're hinting at, you know, the, the, the next step that happens to the animal is the consult and then they're admitted and so um, they've got, to go into some form of housing within the hospital that, um, that continues some of those themes that we've started before they've even got in. They've got to go into um, somewhere that provides them with an adequate thermal environment, somewhere that's quiet and removed from the section of the hospital where the dogs are barking. Um, and, um, and depending on the species, of course, uh, a refuge that's dark in the enclosure or maybe the whole enclosure being dark to, um, to uh, set the animal in a more relaxed and uh, a comfortable state. Um, and they're all things that we count on our support staff to set up for us.
1: And I think it's really just getting back to basics with that. We don't have to have potentially fancy equipment and and, and species specific enclosures or cages. They can again be quite simple, sort of carry cages, etc. But it's just been strategic and and common sense, I suppose, in a way. in that, that yeah, you're not housing that rabbit next to the next to the little mouse or the guinea pig or whatever um, next to the cat, um, and and strategically separating them. Um, physically um from from um prey and predator isn't it mark so um and covering the cages just you know we're when we when we've got a clinic full of of rabbits and guinea pigs that we we're dealing with surgically mark where we've just got the little carry cages um all sitting on the floor or lined up in the um near the surgery and, and they're just literally covering each one with a with a towel that covers that whole carricade. So it's keeping it, um, dark and, and keeping that animal, um, a little bit less stressed than if it could see out and, um, feel like it's, um, out in the open and, and about to be preyed upon. Um, so housing, yeah, heat, dark, quiet, um, enclosure design can just be pretty simple with it. And it, and it's locating them somewhere, which, um, is a decrease in the stress as best we can for them. Um, what else would we, um, sort of, point out that's a little bit different with nursing of exotic pets anything else that you'd like to chat about mate
0: well with respect to housing i was the only other thing i was going to mention and you've mentioned it several times in other podcasts is um we have to be acutely aware of a sense that um we don't routinely use um and that's um the olfactory environment um and i you know it is a a useful thing to keep them in their carry cage with the bedding or uh, whatever stuff they've come in with uh, because it will have their odour and that Adds to their level of safety, and if you do have to transfer them to a hospital enclosure for, you know, maybe oxygen support or um, uh, additional appropriate heating, then transferring that bedding, the the hay that they've been resting in, or the the uh, maybe the hide that's been in the enclo- the, the carry cage, um, those things do carry that. Um, that uh, familiar smell that um, is so important to these animals. So, so yes, I think um, uh, th- that's the only other thing. I'd with the housing, just yes. be aware of the and smells. That,
1: and that could be as simple as pulling out a bit of the hay. That's the sort of substrate that was, or food that was, sort of substrate and food that was put in with that rabbit or guinea pig in the carry cage that the owner bought. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's a great point there. Just making them feel a little bit at home (laughs) isn't it Mark? So this is a big one but we'll we'll just sort of do a bit of an overview of it it's it's the handling of these animals Mark and um, you know we could we sort of have gone into a little bit of detail on things like the bunny burrito and, and the different variations on wrapping up these animals both to both to medicate them and also transport them between the, the enclosure or the cage, carry cage and, and the hospital cage or even the, the surgery suite and also um, holding them for, for medicating or, or feeding them, Mark. And, and it, with a lot of them, I think the bottom line is it can be very simple and, and literally just things like towels and blankets and, and wrapping that, that animal up and then just extricate in the little um, bit that you want to look at or or to jab. Um, So any other sort of tips about general handling techniques for unusual pets that you like to say, Matt?
0: There's a couple, Brendan. The first one is we mentioned before the the use of um, uh, calico bags or pillow slips to transport our reptiles. And and we have seen a potential problem with some of these. So professionally made bags will be seamed in such a way that... um, that there's no threads for the reptile to get tangled in inside the bag, but if you don't, if you're making do with a, the, you know, a perfectly adequate pillow slip, then turning it inside out so that um, there's no chance a, a thread yes. can come loose and an animal can be caught
1: in it, that's a really critical thing. It's a great tip, and it's something that. Um I'm always showing to clients because they always bring their, you know, 99 percent of the time they bring their their snake in a in a little pillowcase and it's not turned inside out. And as I'm putting it back into the pillowcase, I turn the pillowcase inside out and I I mention what you've said there, and their their eyes light up. and And I've certainly seen a reasonable number of, especially snakes over the years that have that have entwined themselves around the thread in the bottom of the pillowcase or equivalent bag, and it can be quite um, a time-consuming job to extricate them from it, can't it?
0: It, And sometimes it can be life-threateningly dangerous if they're in there for a while tangled up like that. The other thing I think that's worth mentioning, Brendan, and this is, you know, once again, we're sort of getting back to basics. Um, I often, one of the beginner's tricks I learned um, was that when we are restraining these animals, I it's a good rule of thumb to not um, think in your head that you're like, it's important to physically restrain them, to hold them down. What I think I try and get in my head and what seems to work with the support stuff I work with is that whatever you're using, whether it's your hand holding a bird, um, whether it's a, a bunny burrito, um, that structure is um, is almost like a gentle wrap, a supportive cage. And the best handlers I often find are the people who apply the minimal pressure to get the animal to be comfortable and do what they want. And I know it's a big you know, theme in uh, feline nursing at the moment uh, um, to, to think about the minimal handling. But that um, process, I think, extends over into uh, our exotic and unusual pets and particularly our avian patients um, and uh, just being I don't know, firm enough without being too firm. It's a bit of a difficult thing to describe, but um, it is yes. a, a, you can tell, can't you, Brendan, a, a, uh, an experienced um, uh, veterinary nurse handling an exotic patient, they apply just the right
1: pressure and not too much. Yes, and with those prey species, to sort of add on to that, you know, they—if if you're approaching them from above and sort of grabbing that rabbit or that guinea pig from above, then it's—it's it's going to be a lot more frightening for them because it's like they're being grabbed by a, a raptor, etc. Um, so it may be alerting them and coming from the side or in front of them and and just being gentle and and consistent and and calm about it. It's a bit like handling snakes, isn't it, Mark? Um, I find that a lot of, or reptiles generally, that a lot of um, um, nurses or technicians or even owners who are not used to Handling reptiles, they tend to hang on for dear life to that snake. And, um, you need to virtually do the opposite and just gently support the snake and let it, um, let it slither around in your arms and, and across your hands. And you'll just move your hands hand over hand as, it, as that snake's, um, moving. And that animal will feel a lot more, a lot more relaxed than if you, um, constricted, and you're holding it um, firmly. So, yeah, it's a bit of an acquired thing, but I think that's where, if if you have um, um, other nurses in your practice who who are experienced with dealing with particular species, then. Um, You know, ninety nine percent of the time they're more than happy to show you their techniques and how that what they've acquired over time with experience of how to handle them and they're more than willing to show a less experienced nurse how to how to handle them correctly or or as less least stressed um so so the animal is is not stressed out.
0: Um, the other handling. thing brendan about handling is that there's no absolute right way that you know the size of your hand and shape of your hand and strength might be different to someone else's so listen to the other people in your practice look at the things that work for them and then maybe adapt them for you don't feel like you've got to um you know there's not a, like a magic formula that this is the only way these things work
1: yes um i agree um one other, well, before we finish, I mean, there's lots more things we should um, we could chat about um, with with nursing and exotic pets. The only other one I like to mention, which is a bit of a difference with unusual pets, is um, making sure uh, um, the post-anesthetic time frame um, where we have an increased risk compared with other species of of complications during that immediately post-anesthetic um, period. So once you've woken that, especially the small mammals, um, once you've turned the animal off the anesthetic, it's been on the oxygen for a bit, you've taken it off the surgery table and it's in a recovery cage or, or even a recovery bo- box within the surgery um, room that's, an increased risk time um, compared with other species for post-anesthetic complications, including death. So whereas our dogs and cats, once they're put back in the... um, Hospital cage, they're extubated. Um, they're often just left to their own devices, aren't they, Mark? And they're checked on occasionally um, throughout the day until the discharge. Um, so we need to look at and and, and constantly monitor those um, small animals in particular, but any of the unusual pets um, immediately after they've um, recovered from that anaesthetic and during that um, next, you know, um, several minutes to several hours, they need to be regularly checked and. I've even had um, some of them and I'm a little bit concerned about where I'd have I'd literally have um, the carry cage, um, recovery cage, sat next to the um, the nurse on duty and they they literally have the animal right at their feet that they're constantly um, observing the animal.
0: What do you think? Why does that happen, Brendan? Do you have any theories? I know you're full of theories. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs>
1: I've, I've got one. I think I, I've got well, a rare one. One, one. Yeah, well, one. I think it might perhaps um, related to the stress response um, when when they're recovering. That's the one I, I've always sort of thought that we're dealing with prey species or species that aren't used to being handled. Um, so, um, so not not. Locking into the um, thought that it's related to the anaesthetic protocol, I'm more concerned about the the anaesthetic has worn off, and we've got an animal that's um, highly sort of stressed and and, and heightened um, awareness of its surroundings that it's um, stressing out because it's um, often we're dealing with species that we could still regard as a wild wild species and not domesticated. So that's my theory. I know. I
0: I agree with you entirely. I think um, that that it is a critical stage of their recovery because um, they're going to be, you know, they've gone from oxygen to less oxygen. It's going to be a slightly hypoventilated animal recovering from anesthetic. They are going to have surging adrenaline and that intersection between the heart's requirements for. Um, for oxygen uh, rising rapidly and the ability to ventilate only needs the weight of the head to be at a slight angle and we all know the difficult pharyngeal structures in a rabbit's um, throat Um, and just a fold in the wrong spot compromises oxygen for a little while and then you're in a difficult position. So you are completely are correct to insist that um, that they're monitored intensely at that time, I reckon, Brendan, it is a universal thing for us that have um, uh, surgery and anaesthetics and exotic animals.
1: And those, if the worst thing happened there and that, that animal did, did- Pass away or die, then they they can be the worst ones to deal with. Not that any of any anaesthetic or post anaesthetic death is is good, um, because you've completed the surgery, the animals supposedly off the anaesthetic and, and recovering, and then for it to to die during that um, period after that, there they can be quite devastating, can't they? Mo, definitely,
0: definitely the case.
1: Well. I think we should get out of here because're we're, we're almost past our um, supposed time frame which
0: we've is just got a, we've just got the biggest thunderstorm rolling up the coast to Newcastle I can see the lightning so I know my internet is going to die very shortly <laughs> so I think you've picked the right time the outro man has walked
1: in the room at the right time he's he's earning his keep this week Mark and thanks to everyone for listening and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus.
0: Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi.